This episode is sponsored by Art in Res. Art in Res is an innovative platform enabling collectors to pay for artwork and installments. They just finished a cohort with Y Combinator in San Francisco. I've had a chance to speak with the founders and their passion for artists really came through. Check out their website at artinres, that's R-E-S at the end, dot com. On this episode, we have Feng Hyun. Initially pursuing a career in medicine, Feng opted to align with her passion for art. Feng explores cultural identity in her work, marrying Eastern and Western aesthetic sensibilities in a manner that mirrors her own life experiences of cultural slippage and cultural collision. Great to be here with you, Fung. To kick off, why don't you share with us your earliest memory of drawing? My very first memory of drawing. I was in third grade, and my best friend, who I didn't know would be my best friend, moved from Paris to our apartments in Chinatown. So like me, she's, um, she was born in Southeast Asia, but of Chinese descent. And she just started drawing. She was from Paris, so I thought, oh, this Chinese girl from Paris, she's so cool, she's so sophisticated. And she just started drawing. And I, I drew with her, and I loved it, and I fell in love with drawing. And I think for both of us, we were caught in between generations and cultures. We could have no place of belonging, but drawing was a way for us to feel like we belonged somewhere, and that we were visible, and we were audible. And that was in Chinatown, Los Angeles? Yeah, Chinatown, LA. What were you drawing? Anime. <laughs> we were making up our own characters, drew a lot of girls. And now that I look back upon it, it makes sense because it was about empowering ourselves. You know, we didn't draw animals, we didn't draw, you know, landscapes. We specifically draw, drew anime characters that we made up of, of pretty girls that were smart and, you know, empowered. Yeah. Tell me about the character that you made. Oh my goodness. I was caught in between my character being pretty, and this is where all of this colonial colonialism is internalized. I always wanted to draw girls with big, big eyes, you know, because growing up Asian, it's like, you know, you want to have big eyes, fair skin. So all my characters had to have big, big, shiny eyes and like a small pointy nose and a very small mouth, right? And anything they said was through a bubble, but never, when, their mouths were never open. So as I'm talking about it, I was like, that's pretty screwed up thinking about it. But those were the kind of characters that I drew. And part of it was of what was around me, you know? Yeah. I think it's so fascinating that your inspiration was what was around you. Um, this idealization of who you were and wanted to be, it's, uh, it's a wonder to me you're in the third grade. So you're what, like nine years old. There's already there's already this kind of indoctrination about what an Asian aesthetic ideal should be. When did you first feel that? Um, I think I became really aware of it in college, because as an undergraduate at Art Center, I was really taught to draw and paint, mostly figurative. And whenever I drew and painted white people, there was never a question. But then I started towards my senior year investigating Asian identity and Chinese feet binding. And then I started painting Asian figures. Then it became questionable. Like, what are you doing? You know? And then even more so when I went to graduate school and, you know, my peers and my professors were like, this is very introspective, Fang. Do you have to be Asian to understand this? Is it just for Asian audiences? 
Well, uh, in some ways, I don't know how to react to that. I mean, you're, you've been through this tug of war, so to speak, because um, what I'm hearing is that you, you started out and uh, when you, when you didn't start out at Art Center in Pasadena, you started at UC, USC uh, to do pre-med, right? And so you're being tugged by your family in one direction. And then you have to be true to yourself to say, I'm going to be an artist and I'm going to pursue that. And, and then the art world has critiqued your choices or your artistic decisions. So it's just fascinating um, like to not get love from, from either side and it's forced you to carve your own path. I remember growing up, you know, I came from a family of refugees. My father is a Cambodian genocide survivor. My mom survived the Vietnam War. We were broke people in the 70s and came here as refugees. So there's an element of respect for what my parents went through, right? So coming here, being an artist, was out of the question. Like, my parents didn't come here and struggled for a stable life for me to be an artist, which for them represented instability. And I remember my friends saying, well, why don't you just sit down and talk to your parents? Like, uh, Asian people don't do that. <laughs> we don't sit down and talk to our parents, right? So, yeah, being caught in between, you know, being oppressed and trying to be free and finding my voice was really a struggle. You know, because I don't want to give it short shrift. I would really love you to share how your family came here, um, you know, the refugee story, and particularly highlighting your age as it happened and the memorable points for you. Um, so as I mentioned, my father was born in Cambodia. And in 1975, when Pol Pot, the communist dictator, took over Cambodia, he knew that was time to go. And he rode on his bike to the border and biked to Vietnam. And eventually, you know, brought his family, his parents there, and he met my mom there. But my mom was born in 1954, which is the fall of Dien Bien Phu. So my mom was born the year where the French lost their colonial power in Vietnam. So, and my mom is not Vietnamese, she's Chinese. And her parents are refugees from China, and they left during World War II, you know, during Japanese imperialism to, to Vietnam. So my father and my mother have this, this bond in, in the refugee experience, right? Um, but ironically, their marriage was arranged. <laughs> so my mom had a co-worker in Vietnam who knew my father, and, and my father was looking for a wife, and she set them up. But my, my grandparents did not want that marriage because my father's Cambodian. He's dark, right? So there's that colorism issue. We don't know this dark man, the stranger, but this dark man had a boat that'll take your family to America. And my mom, that's why my mom married my dad, under the condition that he took her and her whole family, her mom, her dad, her brothers, her sisters, and their children, you know, to the United States. That's an incredible story, my God. Um, so you came from Vietnam on boat all the way to the U.S.? No, on boat from, from Vietnam to a Thai refugee camp. Um, and on their way, on route to the Thai refugee camp, there were Thai pirates. They knew that vulnerable people were going to be there. And my, my father put my, parent, my, uh, my family underneath the boat with fish and ice so that they wouldn't suffocate, so it'd stay cool down there. So he was mimicking the idea that he's just a fisherman out at sea hiding the refugees, my family, right? But the Thai pirates knew. They came and they made my dad lift the boards 
And back then, Thai pirates, they would, they would take women with them, you know, and, and eventually sell them as prostitutes. So they took my dad, put a, a knife on his throat, and my mom freaked out, and everybody gave all the, their jewelry, their precious belongings, and luckily they didn't touch the women. And we arrived in Thailand, and eight months later was sponsored by a Lutheran family from Michigan to come to the United States in 1978. So I was one and a half, almost two years old. So my first memory of being in the United States was snow. And I'm thinking about it now because through my social justice lens and cultural studies lens, like whiteness, here we come, right? Like coming to Michigan, we're like one of the first Asian families ever in the 1970s in this cold, cold winter. And my family doesn't know how to navigate that, you know, from a tropical climate, right? And after like a few years, when I was about four, my parents were like, we are done with Michigan. You know, there were some pretty racist and bigoted experiences that they had there. They decided the only way for us to really thrive is to move to Los Angeles. You know, my dad's an entrepreneur, he's a businessman, but also to be around our community. Yeah, so we moved to Los Angeles in the 1980s to Chinatown. Wow, so you did that journey from Vietnam to Thailand as an infant? as an infant and it, it just now with with the refugee experience with Syrians and you hear about them with you know floaties on a boat and life jackets and, you know my mom was nursing me you know I was like stuck to her breast I can't even imagine being only 24 years old with a young baby leaving your country and not knowing if you'd, you'd survive you know yeah extraordinary Fung that um is really something. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. Um, I'd like to dive into your works and um, uh, it's fascinating because let's talk about how this cultural backdrop and experience plays into your work. Um, and actually on your website, you use a phrase that your work is all to do with cultural identity from a kaleidoscopic perspective. Yeah. My, I mean, my identity alone is very broken. You know, people like would, like Chinese people wouldn't see me as Chinese. They see me either as American or like, but you're Cambodian and Vietnamese. And then in the Cambodian society, they see me as, you know, Chinese Vietnamese. And even I speak seven languages, right? So when I speak um, Chinese, I have a Cambodian accent, you know, but when I speak Vietnamese, I have a Chinese accent, you know? And sometimes like when I speak English, my friends are like, you, can't, you sound kind of fobby. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> right so I think yeah my cultural identity seeps into my work in terms of like it's very not linear it's very um, very kaleidoscopic it's not like one lens it's like many facets many faces and it looks broken but it's not broken it's a patchwork that's held together um, and so I thought that really informs my work yeah that's great thank you um, you use Chinese symbolism in your work, but there's also a Pan-Asian symbolism. Uh, and I, I was just so delighted to hear about the story of the anime figures as your first kind of foray into art. Um, has Asian symbolism always been a part of your work? Asian symbolism was an entry point when I first started drawing, because I was drawing like anime girls, but I used to watch Chinese soap operas with my grandparents. And we had this exchange where they would translate for me what we were watching in the Chinese soap operas. And then we would watch I Love Lucy or some kind of American television show and I'd translate for them. 
right? So then when I went to, I, I think like it was junior high and high school, but mostly in college, Art Center was so Western-based in the way that, that they taught us, right? Like when I studied painting, it was like Caravaggio, Rembrandt, like all the big Western greats. And it w I wasn't exposed to anything else. And anything else was other or non-Western, which I have an issue using because we don't say Eastern and non-Eastern. We don't say Occidental, right? Um, and that, that kind of awareness came later. But in, in college, it was like trying to be accepted, right? And when you're trying to be accepted, you're trying to be accepted by the norm. And for me, that was white, whiteness and being sanctioned by like the white audience. But it wasn't until like, yeah, graduate school when I investigated Chinese feet binding and noticed how like Asian people would see my work one way and people who are not Asian would see it another way. I'm like, that's interesting because I, I feel like I'm always stuck in between all these worlds. And that's when it really came out. And it really came out when people started, you know, sometimes people look at me like, does she speak English? <laughs> Hell yeah, I speak English, you know. Or, you know, I'd go to an Asian market and they they talk about me in Chinese and I'd respond right back. Or going to a nail salon, getting your nails done, right? And I'd know exactly what they're saying and I'll I'll respond back. In terms of the Chinese symbols you've been drawn to, I detected peaches, turtles, but also cherubic babies, these big fat cheeks. So my mom grew up in Vietnam, but she had to go to Chinese school. And her parents were so much about like preserving the Chinese culture. When I came here to Los Angeles, I had to go to Chinese school. I went to school seven days a week, right? So I went to my American school Monday through Friday and then Chinese school during Saturday and Sunday. I was not allowed to speak English at home. So there's this like obsession with preserving this Chinese culture. But, I'm, but I realized later like they're preserving an antiquated pre-Maoist Chinese culture that's never evolved, <laughs> right? And so a lot of what I learned about Chinese culture was through my family, but also through tchotchkes and curios in Chinatown. You know, I have this conversation with a lot of immigrants and for some of them it resonates uh, uh, with them and others it just doesn't. So I'm really glad that it's resonating with you. Um, to me, it really does appear that the population that leaves the home country, they tend to be more conservative because they're struggling so hard to hang on uh, to, the, to the old ways, to the old country. Whereas those who stay behind, they very much progress in their thinking. And uh, it's uh, great to hear that you're, you're sensing a similar thing. You know, one of the things that really impresses me about your work, and I got so excited about it when I first experienced it, was seeing chiaroscuro on Asian figures. I have never seen that. I mean, we studied this phenomenon, chiaroscuro, in, in art history, and it, it comes from the Renaissance masters, right? It's so cool you said chiaroscuro because um, one of the major artists who influenced me in undergrad was Caravaggio, who's the master of that dramatic chiaroscuro, and Artemisia Gentileschi, because she's like Caravaggio, but the feminist, you know? And of course, their works themselves are visually compelling and create this incredible experience of narrative. But then when you hear about their autobiographies, right, like Caravaggio was, I loved it when I heard he took a dead prostitute who drowned in the Tiber River and used her as a model for Mary in his Death of the Virgin. I'm like, he's 
badass. I like this guy. <laughs> like he can paint and he's crazy, right? <laughs> or Gentileschi too, you know, that at the age of 16, she can paint incredibly. Um, and unfortunately raped by her father's colleague, but they took him to court in the early 17th century. Like that's unheard of. So those were my my models in some way, right? Like I like using, appropriating that style, but I, I love that it's informed by like something deeper. Um, but yeah, in the work, it is this collision of Western, Eastern modes of aesthetics that it, you couldn't, yeah, you would never see, see that happen, but why not? You know, why not? Let's make it happen, you know? Right. Yeah, I mean, the eyes are the most important part of a person's identity, right? And reading, their thoughts and their emotions but it also goes back to when I was young and just wanting to make these anime eyes and big eyes but also in in Asian culture there's an obsession with eyes and like the double eyelid right and so that was something that was always um, constantly reminded right like I remember my mom saying when you're 16 you know we'll get your eyes done because I wasn't born with them, and over the years, as my body fat goes away, then my eyelids started to fold on their own, but I remember this obsession with, I want double eyelids, you know? Yeah. Then when I was really interested in Chinese feet binding, then it was all about distorting the whole body, you know? Then it became like a whole different layer, yeah. Now let's talk about your backgrounds, and how do you make the decision to do a flat background versus one with perspective? Because I hate the backgrounds about the body. <laughs> it's always like, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get into the background a little, a little bit more. But, you know, for me, it's always about the people. And the backgrounds are like a backdrop. And for a long time, it's like, oh, God, the backgrounds. And I just want to get to the people already. But more recently, I'm like trying to, you know, balance it out. And like, you know, the background is just as important. So in some of the pieces, you'll see it's mostly background or mostly negative space. And the figures are a little bit um, smaller. Yeah. That's why I wanted to get into that, the trend of it. Uh, when you have the flat background or, or a monochromatic one or, or sometimes even a gradation of color, um, you know, I get it as a technique because it totally makes us focus on on the figures. Um, the figures end up having this kind of floating in space phenomenon. Um, with your perspective backgrounds, they're highly structured. There's a lot of geometric specificity. Um, what's driving that? And with the recent work, the backgrounds have a lot of play with isometric perspective that you see a lot in like Persian miniature painting or ukiyo prints from from Japan. So it's about like conveying three-dimensional space that's completely impossible because all the lines are perfectly parallel to each other. And I love that idea. Or like in Japanese um, painting and printmaking where like the rooftop is blown off so that you can see inside the space. And you as a viewer know there is a roof there, but the artist took it out so I can see what's inside. So I love that idea. And again, going back to the re-reckoning of you know, Eastern and Western modes of work colliding, but trying to work together in the pieces. Yeah, that's completely my sense of uh, Persian miniatures. And then it's the same for uh, Mughal era works in India. There's a uh, bottom and top, and that's a perspective. Yeah. 
<laughs> I love I love that, right? The the sense of hierarchy. Whatever's far away is at the top, whatever's close to you is at the bottom. Like that just blew my mind. Like how did people figure that out? Right? Whereas like linear perspective in Western art is about observation. You know? It's it's empirical, quote unquote. But in Eastern art it's about being inventive and not just mimicking what you see, but trying to probe deeper than what you see. Fantastic. Um, gosh, Fung, we're getting into a lot of great topics here. I'm really appreciating this. Um, the decision between painting or drawing, what, what drives that for you? Oh, I love them both so much. I love drawing and painting so much. With drawing, it's so much about the line and the sensuality of the line and how it moves across the paper, right? And then with painting, it's like building skin and layers. They're so different. But what's kind of sad for me is when I begin a painting, I beginning as drawing. Like I literally draw on the canvas with graphite pencil and just loving the line, right? And then they go away because I have to put skin over it when I build the paint on top. Okay, now I'd like to spend a little time um, about the concepts behind your work, um, the evolution of them, how you came to them. Have at it. I think like many artists, a lot of the concepts come from our lived experiences, right? So I think like the major driving force for me is about cultural slippage and cultural collision and how that manifests. So with the recent work focusing on Asian female bodies and how they are transformed and influenced by plastic surgery to westernize and erase any kind of racial identity and displacing that harkens all the way back to my like haphazard patchwork experience and, I, and cultural identity. So that's always been the driving force is cultural slippage and misinterpretation. And I feel like misinterpretation is another form of interpretation anyway, right? And so um, I notice in, in, in Japanese pop magazines, like fashion magazines, that's like a perfect example of culture collision. Like, wait, it's kind of like European L Vogue, but it still has some of that Japanese aesthetic too, right? And the models that they choose don't really look Japanese. They kind of look Eurasian or mixed or hapa. So those are the things that interest me where it's like, things are questionable, subversive, you know, in the work. So um, then I dive into it, like, you know, I get hooked and then I start going to um, these Japanese cosmetic stores and I start seeing eye tape and nose rollers and all these funky things that function as really um, plastic surgery tools if you look at it in that way. And then, and then I started like painting about it, you know, yeah. You know, I, I'd love to draw just a very uh, fine point around this because, you know, this body of work that does focus on plastic surgery and that sense of aesthetic. And then, you know, we were talking about the foot binding, but there are some figures that look more Asian and then there are others that look more Western, particularly with this. We, we've talked about shape of the eyes, uh, but also bust and size of the bust. So let's go through those themes. Right, right. Yeah. Um, 
So in the new body of work, I wanted to contrast the, these different canons of beauty, right? So with, with when, when I'm researching and reading about Chinese feet binding, it was about like the smaller the feet and flat breasts and small breasts, small eyes were seen as an ideal form of beauty. And I'm thinking, well, Chinese feet binding is an early form of cosmetic surgery because it's literally breaking and remolding your body to conform to a canon of beauty that was not there when you were born, right? And I feel like, and I wanted to contrast that with what's going on with Asian women now with breast implants and widening their eyes and, and getting nose jobs and things like that. I'm like, that's exactly what's happening. But there's another layer now because of colonialism, it's about race too. It's about being white. Like um, Asians getting, Asian women bleaching their hair blonde or getting contacts. Fung, I'd like for you to talk a little bit about your public artwork. How did that come about? You know, I'm really surprised I got some of these public art commissioned because my work generally is pretty controversial. A lot of nudity and violence and a lot of people see my work even as stereotyping, right? So, but I love the idea of public art because not everybody could afford art. And I love the idea of making art to activate public space. And I like, like, yeah, I don't mind gum getting on my art. I love that, you know, or someone walking on it. Oh, shoot, I just walked on art. Yeah, you walked on art and that's okay, right? But I love engaging with the public. But the tricky thing about it is it's always vetted by a panel. Um, and this may sound controversial, but I think it gets censored and watered down, you know? Um, how did I get into it? So I saw a call by Metro to make artwork for stations on the Orange Line. And I submitted my work. And I was very lucky because whoever saw the work had a very open mind about my work and wanted to have it there. So I felt like that experience was such a good experience. It didn't get edited at all. I had this idea of like the Chinese cherubs and California poppies and intermingling like different cultural tropes. And it went so smoothly. Like Metro is so good about making sure everything is done right and that the artist's voice is well represented. I'm like, oh, I thought that's how all public art projects were. Oh boy, was I wrong, right? And you know, because we've seen public art, we're like, what is that? <laughs> you know, like, ugh. So um, there was a, a, a public housing project that was going up in Chinatown, like a building for 200 units for low-income uh, families. And, and, and I was, and somebody from Metro had told them about me. And I grew up in Chinatown, you know, that's where I grew up. And I went to school there and I thought, how serendipitous was this? And I had this idea of auspicious imagery, which is the Chinese tradition of putting images on your wall for good luck, like babies, happy babies, or certain words. And so I designed this whole idea of like wanting to bring luck and happiness and prosperity to these families. So I had made designs of, of babies and fish and lotus. And in Chinese, yu, you yu means prosperity, right? So they're homophones. And I thought, great. And, and the architect looked at it, great. Everything was running smoothly. And then a project manager from Chinatown, older, more conservative, from Hong Kong, looked at my work and hated it and said, we need to stop this project. If it goes up, there'll be protests all over Chinatown to demand that Fung's work be taken down. And I was shocked. So a meeting, an emergency meeting was called with this Chinatown project manager and various people involved in the project. And she said some very racist, bigoted things. She said, those babies that you drew, they look ugly and demonic and they look Indian. They don't even look Chinese. 
and they're dark-skinned babies. Chinese people like light-skinned babies. And I just could not believe that I was listening to this, right? And she said, and you're mixing carp and lotus? Carp fish, that's, that's Christian symbolism. And lotus, that's Buddhist symbolism. And you're just conflating the two and confusing the two. And she completely took my work to a whole different level of misunderstanding. And I was really upset. And I thought about, oh, you know, like, hold my jewelry. I don't know. <laughs> you know, like, I'm going to go to the LA Times. And, like, and then I calmed down. And this is where, like, my mom's feminism, right, kicks in. Like, wait, wait. Like, really look at this. How can you take this terrible experience and turn it around into a more powerful experience, right? So I'm like, that's what my work is about. Exactly. She just helped me look at what my work is about. And it's about being uncomfortable. And it's about stereotype. And it's about where different people, depending on where they are, are going to look things in a certain way, right? And at that time, this woman worked for the Community Redevelopment Agency, CRA. And they, they bought works of mine and installed it in their building. And she had to walk by my painting every single day, knowing who I was, knowing that I was the artist she wanted to shut down. And I'm like, that's powerful. Like, I didn't have to go to the LA Times for that. Like, that's just karmic revolution happening right there. <laughs> thank you so very much, Fung. You shared a lot of great things. I can't thank you enough. Thanks for your questions. Like, as I'm talking, like, it makes me, like, more informed about my own practice, right? Awesome. So thank That's you great. for that. Thank you. Yay! Achieve is recorded at Subtractive in Hangar 8 at the Santa Monica Airport. Music is produced by Hennedy.